0: Things are very polarised. You either believe in it or you don't. And if you believe in it, you don't listen to the people who say that there's a problem, and vice versa. So people are in their little, their little uh, silos, and they're not listening to each other. We all feel very strongly about it, and that's a problem. I think I mean, science shouldn't work that way. Science should be about asking a question, gathering information, and coming to a consensus. Um, but there are all sorts of other emotional, ideological, personal issues involved. People make up their minds about something and it's very hard to get into change. Yes, it's made me more cynical, it's made me more look at the issues more more carefully than just accept what I've been told. <laughs>
1: Today I had the pleasure to speak to one of Australia's leading experts in tobacco control, Dr. Colin Mendelson. With over three decades of dedicated service in smoking cessation and tobacco harm reduction, in our discussion today we delve into the complex world of public health, examining the often unnoticed created echo chambers, the intricate web of incentives that shape government policy, and the impact of societal biases on public health decisions. This episode is more than just a talk on tobacco control. It's a lens to try to understand the authoritative landscape of Australian public health. Our conversation culminates in a crucial discussion about the importance of being open to evidence. Dr. Mendelson, with his focus on harm reduction, provides a unique perspective on this issue, advocating for the use of safer nicotine products like vaping and smokeless tobacco for those who struggle to quit smoking. And whether you're a non-smoker intrigued by this topic or someone seeking safer alternatives, I promise that this will offer you a way to challenge your thoughts on nicotine, tobacco, and public health. Thanks for being here. Colin, before we start, uh, congratulations on your retirement.
0: Well, look, I haven't actually retired. I, 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 we might mention that, but I've tried, I've tried three times and I, I just can't seem to let go. I keep going back to to the work, which I really enjoy. And I often think when I'm sitting around at home, what will I do now, I'm retired? But what I really want to do is go and read some journal articles about smoking or vaping and write an article and maybe do some teaching and I just find I keep slipping back into it.
1: It's funny because you're a doctor and a public health advocate, and I kept returning to your blog post about your upcoming retirement. I think yeah. the tone is very strong and, interesting to maybe start our conversation. But before we start there, could you give us a quick update of your career, your medical practice, what attracted you to smoking, what it's like being a doctor in Australia, or just a general overview of how you describe yourself? I became
0: a medical practitioner uh, when, uh, in 1976, I graduated. My father was a doctor and my two brothers are doctors. So cancer runs in the family, um, as well as many other members of the family. I initially worked in general practice, um, but became involved in a university smoking program. Within a few years, um, I was asked to teach in in this program, and I just developed an interest in smoking uh, as a result of that. But it's very clear that in general practice and in medicine generally, probably the most important thing you can do for someone's health is to help quit smoking. I mean, we know smoking kills up to two in three long-term users, and they lose on average ten years of life. I mean, smoking kills. Over a billion people is going to kill over a billion people this century. Twenty-one thousand Australians die every year unnecessarily because of smoking. It's a bit, it just it became clear that if I was to do something useful, then helping people to quit smoking would probably be the most important thing I could do. But having said that, um, you know, it's one of the most frustrating things to, to deal with—not just for the patient who smokes, but also for the doctor. I mean, the success rates are very low. We know how addictive smoking is. And then in 2014, electronic cigarettes became valid in Australia. Uh, I became aware of them, and I was seeing uh, the results, hearing excellent reports. So I went to the UK in 2015. I spoke to some of the leading experts there. That was kind of the epicenter of vaping. Um, Came back to Australia, wrote some articles, and started following the research very closely, seeing wonderful results with my smoking patient. Now we know that it's the most effective quitting aid we have to help people quit. Um, and it's at least 95% safer than smoking. So for people who can't quit, it's a no-brainer that you're going to reduce your harm by making that switch. So I've been involved in research, teaching, advocacy, helping smokers to quit. In 2017, a small group of doctors and I started a health promotion charity called the Australian Tobacco Harm Reduction Association, which is all about raising awareness of products like vaping to help people quit smoking. So, And that was running, been running for, for some years. I became an associate professor in public health for several years. I've been on the committee that develops the Australian Smoking Cessation Guidelines, so it's been a special area of interest. And I wrote a book about quitting smoking by switching to vaping, or Stop Smoking, Start Vaping. If I could just make a small plug. Um, which is all about giving people the evidence and practical advice on, on how to quit. So that's been my career over about, well, now, well, it's too many years to remember 24, no, it's about 48 years uh, of, of medicine. Over the last few years, I've focused almost exclusively on, on smoking and vaping.
1: Could you give us a little bit of context on the Australian situation, the politics around vaping, about tobacco products, maybe in a contrast to the US and even China. Yeah. Let's just uh, give a global overview yeah. of what tobacco products are like worldwide.
0: Yeah. Look, uh, smoking is still a huge issue. It's the biggest preventable cause of death and illness in the world. So, one point three billion smokers are still people still smoke around the world, and that hasn't changed since uh, about two thousand. So, and there's about one billion deaths globally. So, it's a huge issue. So, just Encouraging people to quit isn't working. So that's why alternatives like uh, vaping have become popular. In Australia in particular, the smoking rates have remained stagnant for the last five years. They actually haven't reduced. The number of smokers, percentage of smokers, is much the same. Whereas in some countries like the US, New Zealand, in the EU, in the UK, we're seeing quite rapid falls in smoking rates. And we can come back to that, but that's mainly occurring in countries which have embraced tobacco harm reduction, which means tobacco harm reduction is kind of a pragmatic solution to smoking. It said, look, we know you can't quit, but we don't want you to die from it. So if you have to quit, keep smoking. Let's switch you over to something safer that won't kill you. It won't eliminate all the harm, but it'll eliminate most of the harm. Countries which are doing that, which allow those products, are seeing you know, rapid falls in smoking. Still, most of the smokers occur in lower- and middle-income countries, and they're the ones that are struggling most. They're not getting the benefit of these um, safer alternatives. We can talk more about those safer alternatives, but but there are countries where smoking is declining rapidly. For example, take our nearest neighbour, New Zealand. So this is just a, a very similar neighboring country. Which has a very similar demographics and social economic qualities to Australia, and has very similar tobacco control. In New Zealand, the smoking rate's fallen by 49% in five years. And that's because they've embraced vaping. So they've got massive numbers of smokers switching to this much safer alternative. In Australia, where we we have hostile opposition to vaping, the smoking rate has remained unchanged. And the only difference between the two countries in terms of tobacco control and, and, and recent changes has been vaping. That's clearly a factor. In Japan, they have a different kind of safer alternative called heated tobacco where you use a little tobacco stick, you don't burn it, you put it into an electric, electronic device that heats it and you get a vapor. In Japan, consumption of tobacco has fallen by 50% in the last seven years. Sweden in, in Sweden, they use little nicotine pouches that they put under the gum. Sweden has the lowest smoking rate in the Western world, about 6% of people smoke. They have incredibly low smoking-related disease, the lowest lung cancer rate by far in Europe. So this is an alternative, a safe alternative to the cigarettes. And a lot of countries are now introducing nicotine pouches, which are like, again, little pouches that go under them. So there are ways to get these smoking rates down. Then they haven't reached most of the lower middle income countries where they're needed. And in Asia, smoking rates vary enormously and attitudes to these products vary enormously. For example, in the Philippines, smoking vaping is approved and it's, of course, having success. In uh, Thailand, it's not approved. And it often seems quite random. There are all sorts of bizarre reasons why countries prove and don't prove these uh, alternatives to smoking. But uh, one thing's for sure is that they do work when they're, when they're made and vulnerable. So many countries see them as a threat uh, for all the wrong reasons, and we can talk about why they're imposed. There's a lot of misinformation about vaping, but where these products are available, they're making a difference. And without them, we're finding people are really struggling to get those smoking rates down.
1: Colin, and one of the things interesting about your book is that your tonality towards nicotine users is neutral. And I'd like to contrast that with maybe the general feeling in Australia that all nicotine products are evil or dangerous. And where do you think that bias comes from? Or what are the benefits of nicotine? Why do people use nicotine? Maybe you can explore some yeah. of those issues. Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's not
0: only nicotine that's evil, but smokers as well. I mean, smokers have been... Uh, victimised, they've been stigmatised, they've been labelled will deliberately of not doing what they're being told to do, and, and smokers have been vilified like that, and and that's very distressing and, and really unfair, also, because most of them began when they were young, they became addicted, and weren't able to quit, so they're, comp- they're compulsive in their habit, and, and that's just something that's just developed over time. These days, we tend to see smoking more as uh, an addiction uh, rather than it's, it's something that people people's control. Most smokers would deeply love to quit, and it's really unfair to demonise them because of it. They would love to love to quit. Most of them would. Many of them have given up because they just found it so hard. And the other issue you you brought up is the whole issue about nicotine. Nicotine has also been really demonised over the years. Uh, it's it's terribly misunderstood. And that's because it's associated with smoking and its it does cause dependence, but otherwise it's relatively benign. That's not just my view, I mean the Royal Society for Public Health in the UK says nicotine is no more harmful than caffeine. The Royal College of Physicians says there is relatively minor harm from nicotine. Look, it does contribute to dependence, but it's much more addictive in cigarettes. That is in any other form, because in a cigarette smoke, you get other chemicals that make it more addictive. Um, but it has significant benefits, nicotine, and smokers use it for those benefits. So smokers enjoy their smoking, because nicotine releases dopamine, which is the pleasure hormone, uh, which makes you feel good. It has a range of functional benefits, so it improves concentration, it improves short-term memory, It improves general attention, it improves weight control, and it has certain therapeutic effects. It does protect the brain from Parkinson's disease. It improves schizophrenia, ulcerative colitis. Uh, It's good for attention deficit disorder. And smokers know this. I mean, they may not be aware of the science behind it, but they know that they feel better, that they get benefits from nicotine. I think we should take the focus away from Trying to eliminate nicotine because nicotine is is relatively benign, but avoiding smoking. In other words, it's the form that you take nicotine in. If you take it in with cigarette smoke, that's what's going to kill you, because what kills people is when you burn tobacco leaf, you create over seven thousand toxic chemicals, uh, and they cause cancer and heart and lung disease. Not the nicotine that does that So if you have nicotine in vaping or in a heated tobacco product, or a nicotine pouch, or snooze, you're not burning anything. You're not getting all those chemicals. It's not completely harmless, because you are getting certain small amounts of chemicals, but there's no comparison.
1: Have you studied all the usage of nicotine in, I guess, the biohacking community? There's a very strong biohacking, people who, neuro enhancement, biohacking, people who are you know using supplements and it's it's definitely like in silicon valley i would say if you went to the desks of you know silicon valley executive programmers you'll all see either snus or oh, so i'm just curious if you've studied how people are using or trying to eliminate those negative effects of smoking while still maintaining the positive effects and if you've seen yeah
0: yeah, yeah. look it's not something I mean, that's studied, study and i'm not sure there's been much study of it but Nicotine's been part of society for over 6,000 years. And there are clearly positive benefits that people enjoy. We're never going to get rid of nicotine because people are going to get positive benefits that they want. Of course, there's always some risks with everything we do. And every time we choose to use a drug or form an activity, we, we balance the risks and the benefits. And the, the risks for nicotine are within the sort of risk appetite that we take every day for lots of different things. So increasingly there are people who are taking nicotine for those positive benefits. So a lot of people will say, look, when I was young, I had ADHD, didn't realise I had it, but I smoked and I felt much better. And then I came across, for example, vaping and I stopped smoking. I get my nicotine now for vaping. And I can concentrate now. I can I can think more clearly. A lot of people use, well, I don't know how many, but increasingly people are using nicotine for the cognitive benefits. So if you are working and you try to concentrate, nicotine helps with concentration, um, attention, short-term memory. So it's used for all sorts of purposes. And of course, look, there are risks. It does put your blood pressure up a little. does put your pulse up a little bit. Long-term yes can lead to wound. Issues with wound healing, again minor. can affect your glucose level, again minor. There are small risks. Can make you dizzy if you have too much, can give you a headache if you have too much. But with normal use, people don't have those problems. They get to know what's the right dose for them. So, yes, there's a lot of that. People use TT for lots of positive benefits. And as long as you're not taking it with cigarette smoke, then the risks from are not very
1: small. So, Colin, how did you? I want to, maybe I can explore your background a bit, but where did that neutrality towards looking at the evidence come from? Because in your latest, maybe we can talk about your retirement, it seems like you're fighting. Entire public health industry that seems very dogmatic in resisting this yeah. conversation.
0: But there is a change. There has been a change over the years. We, as I say, we used to be much more stigmatizing smokers. Um, smoking was regarded as a, as a bad habit that people did, and they shouldn't be doing it because it's bad for them. And we told them not to, and they still kept doing it. They're obviously bad people. And then increasingly, we've become aware that it's, it's an addiction that. People just Unfortunately, there's an association with vaping and people in uh, who are in disadvantaged groups, so stigmatised groups, prisoners, people with mental illness, and homeless people. And there has been a stigma associated with it, but um, I think we have to have a bit more empathy and compassion because these are people who have used nicotine and smoking to help them with difficult lives. And I think increasingly we're becoming to see nicotine more as a treatment for people who who have struggled and to whom. Negative makes life a lot more bearable, and I, I think generally we are changing. But there is still a lot of stigma about smoking, and I think people are quite tough on smokers because of. And there is the issue of secondhand smoke, which is a valid issue. I think people don't want to be around smokers because of the the no risk of know, secondhand. So I think if we if we um, avoid being exposed to secondhand smoke, we have to understand smoking is just a a dependence that people have developed that they would love mostly to stop, um, and we should support them if we can.
1: And where is this resistance coming from in Australia compared to New Zealand? I'm just trying to understand why they're so against the vaping culture. Is it ingrained tobacco companies? W- w- maybe in your book you overview some of these forces, the yeah. taxes. Maybe we can go over okay. some of these.
0: Yeah, look, there's a lot of issues. In Australia, I guess, the, the main concern things are ideological. So we've always had this approach in Australia that people should just quit smoking. We shouldn't smoke evil and bad for you. We're going to make them quit. The trouble is most people can't. And I've discovered that even using the best practices that we have, the vast majority of people find it very difficult to quit and they try and fail repeatedly. By the age of 40 or so, most people who smoke have tried and failed at least 25, 30 times. So they want to quit, but they can't. So we have this idea that people should just quit. And now we've got a different way of doing it, helping these people. So we recognise they can't quit, so instead we're going to give them the nicotine they're addicted to, but not the poisons so that are going to kill them. And the Australians who control Movement are kind of opposed to that. Their approach has always been, well, people should just quit. It's like the war on drugs. You, you, you're on drugs, you should just stop. They're bad for you. So just stop, just quit. It doesn't work. And we haven't quite come to terms with the idea that, that, that people are struggling. We've got a... Third priority is to reduce harm. And for these people who are going to smoke anyway, uh, if we can reduce the harm and reduce the, death, the risk of death, then we should do that uh, as compassionate people and as doctors. We should reduce the risk of them getting cancer, lung disease, and heart disease. And we can do that with safe alternatives. So, but in Australia, we're kind of stuck on this abstinence only model. Just quick. So that's one thing. The second thing is it's political. We've kind of developed this idea that People should quit, and that's the only way of going about it. So politicians have decided, well, that's the position which we need to take. If we t- change that position, and because all the in Australia, all the health organisations are opposed to safer alternatives, they just want people to quit. Then there's a huge gap. A huge, there's going to be a huge political backlash. So politicians may recognise that what they're doing is ridiculous, that we should let people make that change, but What's the AMA going to say? What's the Cancer Council going to say? What are our regulators going to say? These are companies, these organisations that have come out against vaping. So it's political. There's more to gain by being tough on tobacco companies, which are linked to the supportive of young people. We don't want young people vaping, so we're going to ban vaping. Uh, There's kind of a political gain in doing nothing, in in being tough on vaping. I think that's what we're seeing in Australia. There's also financial issues. We make $15 billion dollars, tax in australia from cigarettes we're going to lose that if people quit smoking and it's very cynical but that's a reality and it's true in the u.s as well there are vested interests there are organizations whose reason for existence are the gain funding to do research and advocacy against smoking to be the anti-smoking organizations now if people quit smoking which they will with vaping and these other safer products they're no purpose for them, there'd be no point of having them anymore. They won't have their conferences, they, they won't have their, they, they won't need the staff, they won't need all the uh, the structure of the organisations anymore. So they're a vested interest, there are people who have a vested interest in the way we've always made people quit, um, by just getting them to quit, and, and, and if we now get people to quit by a different method, that's not the way they've always done it, and their legacy will be undermined by that. They're all very bad reasons. I mean, our priority should be what's best for people in terms of public health. What's going to prevent cancer, lung disease, and heart disease? Vaping, needed tobacco, snus, nicotine patches will do that. But we're kind of not giving that, 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 that those concerns a our priority.
1: Do you see any parallels? I, I just keep seeing Australia had kind of, at least in the U.S., a negative image during covid for a a very strict authoritarian approach to the covid pandemic i'm just curious if you see parallels there it just seems like public health in australia is very authoritarian and
0: absolutely i think i think there's a real issue about australia being a any state and and we know what's best for you and we're going to tell you what to do and then we're going to make you do it in new zealand they're much more progressive I think that's why we're seeing, they're seeing a big difference, certainly across, across the Hasbro in New Zealand. There. You know, the harm principle that, you know, John Mills has, has developed some years ago, I think is something we don't, we should be living by, but we're not. And that's all about the government has no role in changing people's behavior if what they're doing is harming no one else. So if you want to vape and that's, that's your business and you're not vetting anyone else, none of, none of, them has no, not the government's business. And I think, I think America is more. Yeah, more, uh, take more of that view. In Australia, we we think we have this right. The government has a right to tell people what to do. What they're doing is not harming anyone else. If it's harming someone else, it's very relevant. But it's it's not. What do you do in the privacy of your own life, in your own home?
1: That's,
0: or even out, outside, that if it's not harming someone, it's not their business.
1: And where do you think that psychology comes from? Because, you know, you're describing more of a libertarian attitude, the US libertarian you kind of. I'm just, I don't know enough about Australia's mental state, yep. but it's almost a conservative argument to let people do what they want at home, right? Yep. Smoking in a way is a conservative thing, right? If people want to vape in their own home, that seems like a conservative argument. So if these public health organizations in Australia are authoritative, they, like you said, the nanny state. It's
0: really so- authoritarian, absolutely. but uh, there are libertarian groups in Australia, and some of them are fighting for vaping and, and other personal rights. Um, So there there are a range of views, but I think the dominant view is authoritarian, uh, that the government has gone too far. I think we're talking about government overreach here in many areas. There are many areas. In fact, there was in one of the states we had a review, a nanny state review, which they looked at those sorts of issues where the government was overreaching, maybe it's certainly one of them. I don't think there's any question about that. It's a human rights issue. It's a social justice issue, and people have a right to choose a safer alternative. If you're smoking and you can't quit, uh, you have a right to choose a safer alternative. It's wrong for the government to say, no, you have to keep smoking, or stop. Well, I can't stop, so I have to keep smoking. Th- that's wrong. It's a human rights issue because people who smoke are increasingly concentrated in disadvantaged groups. We're, we're, we we're should be helping them, not making it for them. They're already struggling as it is. We're, we're telling them that they have to do it that way, which isn't working for
1: them. Could you give me a context just for listeners to know, so currently you need a prescription to get a, I guess, a vape license. How does that work? What are the practicalities of it? How does that differ to other countries?
0: We're the only country in the Western world that has the requirement to have a prescription for nicotine to vape and possessing nicotine legally. So if you want to legally vape, you need to find Dr. Bill Wright's script For you, and very few will, for lots of reasons which we can talk about. Then you have to go to a pharmacy. You have to find one that will prescribe, that will dispense vapes, and very few do. And you have to find one that will dispense the ones that you're interested in. Currently, you can, with that script, import nicotine products from overseas, but from the 1st of March, the government's going to ban the import scheme. So people have to find a doctor, find a pharmacy, and buy a product that's available. Now, that's an absurd situation when you can go to the corner shop next door and buy a pack of cigarettes that you know are going to kill you. So, you know, we're telling people, yes, you can buy cigarettes anywhere, up to 40,000 outlets in Australia, but if you want to get a, a much safer alternative, you have to jump through all these things. Now, clearly that's stupid, and people have recognized that. And over 90% of people who vape in Australia, and there's 1.7 million adult vapers, don't have a prescription. So they vape illegally. What do they do? They buy them from the black market. So the black market has said, Well, no one's going to do that, and people aren't, so we'll provide them for you. So there's now thousands of outlets that are providing unregulated products that are imported from China, that are uh, controlled by criminal networks and sold freely to young people, that pay no tax, that are providing these products to anyone who wants them. So, you know, we, we've set this up as a way of trying to regulate things. We've ended up with the biggest possible mess. And, you know, enforcement's making no difference. And that's something we've seen with other drug, drug wars in the past. When you try to enforce these kinds of restrictions on drugs, they don't go away. If people want them, they, they find another way to get them. And, and Black Market will step up and provide, provide creative ways to make those products available. And that's what they're doing in Australia.
1: What percentage of the vapors are actually getting the legal e-cigarettes, I'm just curious. Seven
0: seven to eight percent have a screen. Seven to eight percent.
1: You've created a a million and a half criminals.
0: Yeah, so we've criminalized other people who would normally be law abiding who want to do the right thing, who are trying to improve their health, we've criminalized them. And, And we're going to, and we're cracking down on them. There's increasing enforcement and you know, we've experience experienced law enforcement or drug crime doesn't work. It doesn't reduce the amount of drug supply. It doesn't reduce the amount used. Uh, we've seen that over and over again. We banned heroin in Australia in 1953. The survey last year from the local university found that over 90% of heroin, drug use, intravenous drug use, said it was easy or very easy to get heroin. But it just doesn't work. We, we just... I mean, look at prohibition in the U.S. You know, uh, it just didn't work. It created criminal, organised crime stepped up, bootlegging moonshine. Uh, You know, we saw all the the complications to to help as a result. Sure, alcohol uh, intake dropped temporarily. Well, it was a disaster in the end. They couldn't control it. And they ended up reviewing alcohol and changing the laws. And, and it, that's what's going to happen in Australia.
1: Is this the same thing for other, um, like snus products or gums or lozenges or sprays? Are those regulated as well or totally illegal in Australia?
0: In Australia, they're basically, essentially, they're banned. From a practical point of view, they're banned. I mean, you can't jump through hoops. If you can find a doctor, will do this for you, and filling forms, and you get customs forms, and you pay taxes. But from a practical point of view, they're, they're all banned. Yeah, which, again, makes no sense. The government, I think, is very attached to its tobacco tax, which is our fourth biggest tax, or now the fifth biggest tax in Australia. And they're clearly concerned about losing that tax. Well, you know, I don't, I can't say... What I can say is that most people believe that's the case.
1: What is a pack of cigarettes cost in Australia, it's for people to know?
0: In Australia, yeah. Australia has the highest cigarette prices in the world. Again, it's not a big mistake we've made. We've put the prices up so high, it's got to the point where it's not making any difference whatsoever. We've gone past the point of diminishing returns where people get ridiculous, just have to keep smoking. And we're talking about disadvantaged people who are becoming financially uh, disadvantaged further by this. In Australia, for a pack of Marlboro, you might pay over $40, Pack for 20 In the US, I think it's 12 or $13. Um, it's by far the highest, anyway. So, what's and, the role of the
1: black like, market? M- mark, black market in the tobacco sales? Is there one?
0: Yes, yeah, so a huge. So, the, the, the black market now, because of these high prices, is about 25% of the total market for, for tobacco in Australia. So, the government's losing four billion dollars a year in tax. Organised crime has stepped up, and we have all the problems now that go with the gang with with organised crime and gang wars. Gang uh, there are turf wars to control the market. Tobaccoists have been firebombed. There are murders because of these uh, turf wars. Uh, there's extortion. These organised crime groups go into a tobacco shop and say, We sell our, our, our illegal product. They say no. The next night, their shops are firebomb. There have been over 50 tobacconists firebombed in the last 12 months. And that's just starting and it's building up. It, it's an absolute disaster. It's a total mess we've made. I mean, we all understand that you need to increase taxes and make things more expensive, and that's good to a point because it discourages people from what's being. But after a certain point, it becomes powerful. and we've gone way past that point in Australia. People that people who are disadvantaged, have been financially harmed. We've created a huge criminal network. We're not getting the taxes. Uh, it's just it's just a disaster, and it's, it's a it's a warning to other countries. There's a point where you have to stop and stop being greedy.
1: Are, do you apply the same harm reduction model towards all drugs? Do you think, I mean, where do you fit on the, on the paradigm? Yeah. Do you think-,
0: look, look, I think? I don't think it's any different. I think what we're doing with tobacco harm reduction, it's the same as you know all the other, all the other forms of harm reduction. I'm talking about pill testing, uh, medically supervised injecting rooms, condoms to prevent AIDS, seatbelts to prevent car accidents. It's all about accepting that there are certain things people are going to do, whether we like it or not. We don't say to people, look, you can't drive your car because people keep getting killed on the roads. We say, look, drive your car, but just wear your seatbelt. And and now the car's going to have airbags as well. Um, So it's recognising that people take risks. And they they make measured risks. They make their own minds up. They do what they want to do, but our job in public health is to protect them, to save lives and protect them from, from injury, and this is no different. Uh, tobacco harm reduction is so different. The difference is that tobacco kills more people than all other drugs, all car accidents, suicides, HIV, and a whole range of other harmful behaviors that then all of those together. I mean, this is the big one. And yet, in Australia and in certain countries, it's, it's opposed. You know, they support, and that's the irony. You know, Australia, in theory, supports harm reduction, but when it comes to tobacco harm reduction, which is killing 21,000 people, far more than anything else, oh no, we don't want that because you know kids might use these products, or because we don't know the long-term risks. Okay, we know that two out of three people are going to die from smoking, and we know that vaping is much, much less harmful. We don't know exactly to two decimal points what's going to happen in 40 years' time. So we're not taking any chance. It, it doesn't make any sense.
1: And do you think that just keeps coming from the demonization of the tobacco companies and then association with the tobacco products? Or
0: Well, they yes, I think part of the problem in Australia is that we've had this big struggle with tobacco companies. So over the years, we've introduced various forms of legislation, various rules to restrict their activities. Now, the tobacco companies always fought against that. There's been lots of legal action. and uh, I think the tobacco control experts have had very bitter and and hostile uh, interactions with tobacco companies. Now that we have an alternative to smoking, which the tobacco companies have started to engage with, the argument is, well, the tobacco companies are involved with this. It must be bad. There must be some evil, sinister plan here. This must be a conspiracy by the tobacco companies to hook young kids to vaping or to, to, to nicotine. And that's absolute nonsense because the tobacco companies don't want vaping. They don't want you know, pouches. They want people to buy combustible cigarettes. That is the most profitable consumer product ever invented. But they've got no choice. If they don't get involved, like Kodak, they will go under. This is their Kodak moment. So now about 12% of the world's e-cigarette market is controlled by the tobacco companies. So uh you know that is because of the association, tobacco control Australia I and mean, in some other countries said, well, this must be an evil tobacco conspiracy. So we we're going to oppose it. Whereas in fact what they're doing is in, it, they're supporting the tobacco industry. If you stop, uh, because vaping and cigarettes are substitutes. If you if you stop vaping, people will smoke more. So yeah, that's how that's how stupid this is, that they're actually they're actually supporting the cigarette industry, and 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 having there are more cigarettes sold because of that opposition.
1: Do you have any thoughts on, like the flavor additives and things like that? In many countries in the West, in the US, there's a lot of legislation against you know bubble gum or Coca-Cola flavors, and they always try to come up with these restrictions because of the kids. So I'm curious where you stand on that, or your thoughts, or what the situation is in Australia. Yeah, like I-
0: I think we are good evidence now that adults enjoy the flavours. And I think we need to make vaping attractive. We need for adults who smoke to want to switch to vaping. And if it's got a nice butterscotch flavor or vanilla flavor, and that's drawing you to it, that's a good thing. That's gonna save someone's life. So I think the flavours are important. And the flavors that adults like are very similar to the flavors that kids like and I assume that lots of studies have shown it. so that's that's no surprise so you can't just ban flavors because then you're going to make vaping less attractive and what we do know is that when you have flavored vapes they are more effective in helping people quit and they're more effective in preventing relapse so uh, we want the flavors there they have a really important role um, and if you take the flavors away more people are going to smoke and you don't need many people who go back to smoking to undo any benefits from, from a small number of kids who may have taken our baby because tobacco is so lethal So if you if you take away the flavors and 20 percent of the people go back to smoking that's a disaster given that baby is only a tiny fraction of the risk of smoking
1: um, Colin, just for a quick overview, why is vaping or other nicotine products so much safer than traditional smoking? I mean,
0: there is an enormous amount of misinformation. There are huge misperceptions. The majority of people think that vaping is at least as bad or worse than smoking. Nothing could be further from the truth. We have very good science now. So the science shows that is when you burn a cigarette, you get 7,000 chemicals, mostly in large doses. Sixty-nine of those are known to cause cancer. When you vape, you're heating a nicotine liquid into an aerosol at a much lower temperature. There's no combustion, there's no tobacco, and you're releasing no more than typically 100, 150 uh, chemicals in very small doses. Mostly less than 1% of what they are in tobacco smoke, according to public health evidence. So we're talking about far fewer chemicals at far lower doses. Now, you don't need to be a genius to realise that's going to be a lot safer. And the evidence shows that when you measure the chemicals in the bodies of smokers, and then you measure them in the in their bodies when they vape, the chemicals drop dramatically. Again, you don't need to be a scientist to realise that's not going to be good for you. There have now been lots of clinical studies that show that when people switch from smoking to vaping, their asthma improves, their blood pressure drops, their COPD or emphysema a Whole range of health problems improve. They save a lot of money. They feel a lot better. They breathe better. They have more energy. Um, you know, it, it, it just it just it just defies belief that people can think otherwise. But that's the message people are getting. I don't believe the public who have that misinformation. But I think there's a lot of deliberate misinformation and a lot of sensationalism that you read about in the media. And The media will hear some wildlife story that someone may have had a seizure from vaping, and that'll be the headline. Well, vaping doesn't cause seizures, but someone was vaping and they had a seizure. Well, that's going to happen because seizures are very common. And that sort of misinformation makes people think, well, um, you know, I don't have a seizure, um, maybe your is not so good for you. They don't mention the fact that a billion people, 1.3 billion people die every are going to die from smoking this century. Eight million people a year die from smoking. That's that's not sexy. That doesn't get the headlines. So you know, to give you a ballpark estimate, Public Health England, the Royal College of Physicians have done comprehensive reviews of the risks of relative risk of smoking and vaping, and their argument. Based on those sorts of issues I mentioned, they say that vaping is at least 95% safer than smoking. That's not to say it's safe. And there's often this debate, is vaping safe? Well, of course, nothing is safe. Everything has risks. But vaping is 95% safer. If you're not a smoker, you shouldn't do it. But if you're a smoker and you switch, there are dramatic improvements.
1: I know you advocated with the people in uh, the doctors and physicians in the UK. Have you created networks with other countries? I'm curious, you know, countries near Australia other than New Zealand. I mean, is anyone in China? What's the the role of in e-cigarettes China, in
0: China? The with, yeah, the trouble with China is, well, first of all, most of the e-cigarettes come from China. So at least 95% come from Shenzhen, which is a country southern China. That's where we get most of our supplies from. Um, the trouble with China is that. They have about 350 million smokers, and most of the cigarettes, almost all the cigarettes in China are made by the Chinese National Tobacco Company, which is a government. So there's kind of a conflict of interest there in helping smokers to quit. So in China, uh, they're kind of cracking down a bit on vaping. They're quite happy to export their products, but vaping is a big threat to their profitability. I mean, the money they make from cigarettes is a big part of their budget. On the other hand, they're going to have to deal with a lot of people who are going to get lung cancer, heart disease, and and lung disease as a result of, of, of smoking, and that's that's a tragedy. But um, there is a huge conflict of interest, and the same for India. India has bad vaping; it's extraordinary, but they have bad vaping. And but there's the Indian tobacco company, which makes a, a very large percentage of the cigarettes. in in India. So again, the conflict of interest is staggering. They put money before public health and, you know, to rewrite inclusion, shouldn't they?
1: Have you seen the same, I mean, one of the critiques of pharma as a doctor, have you seen this approach general pharmaceuticals or general health practice as a physician? Do you find the same pressure and the same contrast of interest sometimes in other sectors of healthcare? You know, sometimes, you know.
0: Definitely. Well, we've seen that situation about with my colleagues in the UX when the, the Sackler family, I think it was Sackler, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, uh, they, it. Um, Yeah, and that that's a classic example. And I think there are certainly conflicts of interest. And, um, you know, pharmaceutical companies exist to make money. And most of them are rentable, but there are certainly conflicts of interest. And I think they divert from time to time from that. And I think there are pharmaceutical companies that make medicines for smoking-related illnesses and that make medicines that help people quit smoking who are opposed to vaping. And we see this all the time. So we have inquiries in Australia. And the big pharma companies will often oppose vaping. Vaping doesn't set their business model. They want people, well, I wouldn't say they want people to get sick, but they want people to buy their medicines when they get sick from smoking. And they want people to buy their medicines to help them quit smoking. So they oppose vaping. And you, know, you can draw your own conclusions from that.
1: Have you done any research on um, smoking cessation pharmaceuticals? I'd love to hear your thoughts. I was going to yeah. say on psychedelics as well.
0: I'm not so well informed on psychedelics, but as far as the anti smoking drugs is concerned, if I've been involved in trials, I've met most of those. The fact is that they do work but the success rates are very low. So with NRT, nicotine replacement products, for example, um, six people might quit after 12 months using patches and gum. That's not many. Um, Vaping roughly doubles that. Now, that's still far from ideal, but the advantage with vaping is that these trials, they run them for six months, and they say, yes, six people quit, six percent of people quit, excuse me, with now, with next 10 patches uh, 10 10 quit with vaping so vaping's better but what often happens with vaping is it just takes longer people try different devices different strengths different flavors now after 12 months they find they actually 15 or 20 of them are stopped 20 percent of stock um well they find the one they really wanted and they try to get it work so it's not perfect it's not a magic bullet but it works better and there have been. Um, now, there's a lot of research now of randomised control of trial quality, randomised control trials, and we know that there's high quality evidence that vaping is significantly more effective than nicotine replacement. Now, there's also varenicline, and we know that vaping is at least as effective as varenicline. But the big difference is that vaping is popular. People want to vape. They don't want to use varenicline. It's Chantix in the U.S. So there was well,
1: a black box warning that drug, at least in the US.
0: It used to. I think it's come off now, but people are worried about it. Anything, but they don't take it, chanting. But they don't use it. I think very few do. So, the reason why vaping is so successful is not only is it the most effective treatment we've got, but it's the most popular. So it has the greatest potential to have the widest reach and to help more people quit than anything else. And I think I think that's a really important issue for vaping. There's no point in having a really effective drug if nobody uses it. If people think what's well, gonna make me go get depressed or oh, I'm gonna have a seizure, they're not gonna use it, no matter how good it is. But with vaping, it's relatively benign. And if you're a smoker, it's a hugely safer alternative to smoking. And people want to use it. And they enjoy using it. And the problem with giving up smoking is that you're giving up a lot. You're giving up the nicotine habit, benefits of nicotine, you're giving up all the rituals that go with smoking. Uh, you often get these triggers, you smell smoke or you have a cup of coffee, you just really feel like a cigarette. When you bake, you have all of that. You have enjoyment of the nicotine, the benefits of nicotine, you still enjoy the ritual of smoking. You, you can go outside and have a bake with a friend, all the things you used to do as a smoker, but uh, without most of the harm. And so you're giving up much less so it's much easier to make that step to vaping and then ideally to quit vaping altogether
1: have you done any research on like psilocybin and lsd uh, for smoking cessation because i even personally i have friends who who did magic mushrooms or psilocybin and then he was a pack a day smoker and then one trip he was done he just never wanted to smoke a cigarette again and i know in the 50s when lsd was legal there was a lot of research on lsd as a smoking cessation tool or alcoholic?
0: I don't know where any trials for those products used for smoking. We recently legalized salicyban for Australia for prescription by psychiatrists for certain health mental health disorders. They're the first country in fact to do that. There's not not aware of any trials for those products for smoking.
1: Do you have any concerns about marijuana products and vaping? I mean, this is a separate category totally. Are there fears about that crossover? You know, how do those products interact?
0: The only thing is, if you're going to use marijuana, and I think it, it's the harms of marijuana are grossly exaggerated um, with normal use. But if you're going to use marijuana, you're much better off vaping it than smoking it. Because again, most of the harm huh. from smoking marijuana comes from the combustion. So if you can uh, put it into a vaporizer, either using wax or, or buds or marijuana oils and it's vaporized that so you're heating it and releasing the thc but without burning anything um and there are now little pocket uh, vaporizers that you can carry around with you as well as the the bigger device that so i think it's a much safer way of, of, of getting your thc and look, thc does help a lot of people it, it helps people with relaxation and a whole range of other other issues now have been approved and of course in the us it's widely available, increasingly as a recreational as well as a medicinal product. Um, so uh, I think, I think, I think, vaping is the way to go. But we all know that there was that outbreak of EVALI in North America, where people used black market uh, vaping uh, cartridges, uh, THC cartridges, which were contaminated with vitamin E acetate. And over 2000, young people were seriously affected by that. About 70 people died. Again, that's about the black market. Now, I'm talking about regulated products, and so people should only buy products from trusted, or trusted, approved, licensed uh, athletes. And that's why we need to properly regulate these products. Because if, if you don't, then if you make it too hard to get legal products, people will go to the black market. And the black market is only concerned about profit. And they're interested in whether they're interested in making as much money as they can. And, and they will. Sometimes you experiment with funding agents and so on that are available, and that's what was found with Evali and uh,
1: THC-vaping. Colin, in your email towards me, you asked repeatedly about conflicts of interest. If I work for a tobacco company, how have you funded your work? How do you avoid regulatory capture? How do you avoid conflicts of interest? You know, for listeners, how do they know you're not a e-vape cigarette salesman? Yeah,
0: it's a very good question. I sound a bit bit too passionate about that. So I have never taken funding from e-cigarette or tobacco companies. So all of my advocacy that I do is totally self-funded. So don't tell my wife about this, but it's cost, obviously, personally, uh, public money to do what I've been doing. The the only conflict which isn't actually a conflict was that when I was establishing, Astra, the Tobacco Harm Reduction Charity, in the first two years, we accepted seed funding from e-cigarette companies to help with the legal costs, the with the accounting costs. It wasn't a lot of money, but ever since then, we've been charred with conflicts of interest. Now, none of the doctors who were involved in that charity accepted any funding from e-cigarette companies. So that's that's the first thing. But the money went towards setting up the charity. In hindsight, I wouldn't have said that money. I wouldn't have taken that money because it's been exploited, it's exploited heavily by people who are opposed to vaping, who say, oh, well, they're just shills for big tobacco and they're shills for the cigarette companies. That's because they have no arguments against vaping. All they can do is say, well, they're just shills. They, they, um, they're just being paid by big tobacco. I, I've been, one of Australia's richest men went on national radio and said several years ago, oh, there was the journalist who had been interviewing me the day before, he said, "Oh, that's Colin Middleton. Every time he comes on your show, he gets paid by Big Tobacco." Um, yeah, that, that's just not true. Uh, I went through the process of will I still be? Able to decide that not to. You know, journalists published things saying I'm funded by Big Tobacco. Of course, I'm not. And uh, it's often um, suggested that I am. It's almost as if they can't believe that because the narrative in Australia is so strong against vaping although in in other countries, it's very much in favour of vaping. In Australia, they kind of assume that because I'm supporting vaping, I must be funded. I must be getting some funding, some financial reward, and I'm not, and that's as simple as that. The economics of vaping, I think, would be very favourable if we went down that path. So first of all, there would be enormous savings uh, in healthcare because we wouldn't have all those cancer uh, and lung disease all the deaths due to to, um, smoking Uh, there'd be enormous savings for the government they could tax uh, vapes they could there'd be a whole industry around vaping retail manufacture all the supporting industries uh there'd be economic benefits to the community people have uh, done calculations there would be billions of dollars made available as a result of vaping so i think i think you know yes we're going to lose money from the government from taxes but we you know, there'd be extra productivity. People wouldn't die. Enough. They'd be able to continue to work, and make extra money. Uh, we'd have enormous you know, thousands of people working in this industry. So uh, there'd be, there are, there are economic issues. But I guess, I guess just to say that there are, there is, the, the, the key to me is that there are enormous economic benefits. And the other issue that comes up with vaping is the, the, the uh, environmental issue. The that vapes are an uh, environmental scourge. I have to say that smokes are by far a bigger problem. They are the biggest, most harmful environmental risk to our our, our, our world. But there are solutions to vaping products. So if we regulate vapes and we have a manufacturer-funded program with government stewardship, we could collect vapes. Uh, We could give people credit towards buying a new vape by handing their vapes in. They could be recycled. The majority of vapes can be their parts can be recycled, and in Australia we've talked to recycling companies; they can be recycled. So that problem, which is often thrown up as a reason why we shouldn't have vapes, well, actually we can deal with that, and it would solve the problem: the, the trillions of cigarette butts that are littering the waterways and poisoning, poisoning you know, water, and water uh, every year.
1: Colin, could we? Maybe jump to your essay on or your blog post about your attempts to retire and some of the tonal issues you and advice you have. Or it seems like you're battling and how how do you keep battling? That's what I know. I want to know how do you keep that and Yeah, that's a good
0: question. How do I keep battling? Um look, I have a very good colleague that I work with, um, Dr. Alex Wodak, who's been through harm um, reduction struggles the last 40 years dealing with only- deal with harm reduction for drugs and, and and in a whole range of areas, and he's really been, you know, very inspiring. So Alex has been great. How do I keep going? Um, well, I have tried to retire. I'm 72 today, and I've retired three times. But what I found is that this field of smoking is very, very addictive, and I keep coming back to it. So I'll stop for a while, and I'll be thinking, hmm, what can I do now? I could. Do this or I could do that, or I could go to my desk and read a bit more about vaping and send a few tweets. I always find that, that seems to win out. And also I'm very conscious that we've got in Australia a long way to go. that we have a lot of hostility and opposition to vaping. And we haven't achieved our goals. And i'm very stubborn and I'm very, very determined that this should be this is something that Australia would benefit enormously from. I'm very angry that we have such opposition for all the wrong reasons in Australia. And I feel I want to play a role in achieving this. And I think if, if I can achieve, help achieve this, maybe contribution, I think you know, potentially I could say be involved in saving hundreds of thousands of lives. And yeah, you know, that also keeps me going. And I get a lot of support from the babies. I mean, they, they know how much saving's is them, But they also feel quite hopeless, quite powerless, um, I do have a bit more power because I had an academic background, science background, um, and I have time to take this this further, so I get a lot of satisfaction from being able to, to help people, and I think it will save a lot of lives in the long run. Um, the trouble for me is finding, being able to limit the amount of work I do, so I tend to work too hard, and I'm working on that at the moment, trying to set some boundaries and I think it's coming coming along, but uh, I can see myself
1: still. Is your personality just heterodox, or do you, you know, how how are you not captured by the group ethos? If uh, I've always
0: been very, I've always been very compliant. I've always been not along with that. I don't like conflict. I haven't always gone along with what the majority is. But uh, this is an area I know a lot about. Um, I've learned a lot about overdose for the years. I've studied a lot, of, I've followed the research very carefully. I've seen what's happening in other countries. I know what we're doing in Australia is wrong. I know we're on the wrong side of history. I know I'm doing the right thing. And yes, it's creating a lot of conflict that uh, which I'm experiencing, but I just know it's the right thing to do and I feel I have to do it. And I'm at that point in my career where I can say, well, stuff. they can insult me, they can threaten me, couldn't care less anymore. Um, I'm doing what I think is right. So I'm fortunate to be in that position. If I was 40 and I had a family to support and I was threatening and I was possibly going to lose my career, lose my registration, then that would be obviously a driver. And that's one of the reasons a lot of the researchers in Australia and other countries aren't supportive because they're kind of paid to do research that is, kind of research that shows how powerful vaping is because that's what the funders want um so they're not willing to come out and say oh the vaping is good for you because then they won't get the funding and the research and they won't get their positions. they won't be able to keep their positions at the universities Um, i don't need that anymore i can do what i think is right and um,
1: do you have any advice for other younger physicians or public health people to how to fight for truth or whatnot
0: yeah, look, it's difficult when you're young. Uh, like I said, you, you, know, you are dependent on the opinions of other people and you're dependent on getting grants for research and and you're more you're more sensitive to that criticism, uh, which for me at this stage of my life isn't so important. I've got time to do this as well. I mean, when you're young, you're working and you're trying to support the family, you pay rent. Uh, I, I'm sort of retired, so I've done all that now. I've got time try to go and play tennis or do this and uh, I think not get paid for either. So it doesn't make any difference. So uh, for me to spend time doing this is um is, is something I can afford to do. I think but I think a lot of the younger people I've tried to get people to step up and take it over. Uh, people who really support what I do, but they've said, look, I'm trying to run a practice, medical practice, or so I, I I can't do that because said my, my my employer won't allow me to make those statements in Australia anyway. Because, you know, in other countries, of course, there's a lot more support, but in Australia, there is that hostile opposition, and, and it's quite vitriolic. It's quite nasty, and you do get undermined, and you get personally attacked. And another one:
1: How would you make things? I don't know. Over your career, have you found science become more polarized? I mean, that's one of the. You know, what was it like thirty years ago? Were you more able to share? dissenting views or whatnot, or has it yeah. always in been this field?
0: Yeah, in this field, I mean, you're right. I mean, in this field, things are very polarized. You either believe in it or you don't. And if you believe in it, you don't listen to the people who say that there's a problem, and vice versa. So people are in their little their little uh, silos, and they're not listening to each other. We all feel very strongly about it, and that's a problem. I mean, in a way, it reflects the polarization in society, and certainly in the US, you're very polarized. We are increasingly in Australia, you know, in politics and you know, in a whole range of areas. I don't think, I mean, science shouldn't work that way. Science should be about asking a question, gathering information, and coming to a consensus. Uh, but there are all sorts of other emotional, ideological, personal issues involved. People make up their minds about something, and it's very hard to get into challenge. Uh, and I think that's, you know, often people have a so many months. To talk to someone but they have a predetermined position and they're not willing to change that very few people once they've established a position on something are very willing to change so i'm right about that in my book now we make decisions based on an emotional reaction to something something hits somewhere in us and it it, it feels right and we stick with that and then we look for evidence to support that and we're not open to the evidence to the contrary i think that's that's what's happening, and very much in this field, and it's very hard to convince people to
1: challenge. Your work with nicotine products and nicotine harm reduction strategies—have you approached any other science or any political topics now with more openness? Have you felt yourself become now you're more willing to, you know, engage with whatever positions?
0: Look, that's a very good question, and I think having understood the area very well, I see. I can see the bigger picture. I can see that when the media covers a story, their their focus is on what's going to get sell newspapers. It's not about let's do a balanced review of this this issue. You know, they'll they'll cover the story and they'll present it in a way that sounds really enticing, gets people to read the article. I see the government is limited in its decision making by. Political decision, but it's political issues, not in the case of public health, not about what's best for public health, but what's best for me as, as a politician and as a party. It's made me much more cynical. I didn't used to be, I didn't want to be. But the reality is that, um, I think you know, politics is very much about liable to the next election. Uh, and there are very few politicians, I hate to say, who will take a more, more responsible view of, of, of their decision making. Unfortunately, uh, they there. And you know, the ones who do uh, may not survive to the extent that the others will. I think the system favors the the who are going to not necessarily be doing the right thing, but looking after themselves. So I think, yes, it's made me more cynical. It's made me more look at the issues more, more carefully than just accept what i have being told. Because I can see it in the Tobacco home reaction area what people are being told is wrong. And, and I understand why.
1: And then Dr. Mendelssohn, how can people find you? What's what anything else you'd like to share? Get a copy of your book?
0: Yeah, I, think they, I, think, uh, I think that the most important thing is if they can go to my website, pollinmendelson.com.au. Mm-hmm. So what I've listed there is the whole range of FAQs on baby. It's about 60 questions, which will answer most of the questions they may be asking. They're evidence-based. I, I'm very evidence-based, and I read the literature and I'll follow it very carefully. Doesn't mean I always get it right, but I reference things I say. I've got a list of my publications, which are peer reviewed, uh, a list of my presentations. Uh, I have a regular regular blog, which examines the current issues as they arise. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, they're usually referenced. And again, I try and be as evidence based as possible. Uh, People may be interested in my book, which is Stop Smoking, Start Vaping, uh, which is again 400 references. It, it outlines all the issues we've talked about plus gives people the practical steps on like how to start vaping if you're really a smoker and, the, and how to avoid pitfalls. I think the other very important thing is people need to be heard. I think people often think, well, nothing I can do, but in fact, if enough people who vape speak up, visit their policy makers, visit their members of Congress, and, and and write articles in the media, ring the radio stations, and the story is, out there enough, the politicians will listen. I think they, they they will listen if enough people are making enough noise. And I think that's the only way we're going to get this changed because they're not going to change the laws if they don't think people care, And people do care, but they're not making enough noise about it. So I'd encourage people to well, be as public as they can and as loud as they can and take every opportunity to, as an inquirer, speak out of that and be good.
1: Is there anything else you'd like to share for people or anyone on your birthday?
0: (laughs) Look, I think the most important thing to say is that if you're a smoker, your chance of dying is two or three, up to two in three, if you continue smoking long term. Vaping is life saving. And most people who switch enjoy vaping at least as much as they did smoking. People often enjoy smoking, they don't want to give it up. But switching to vaping is enjoyable. And it will save your life. You'll save a fortune in the money you save, and feel much better. Your family will be delighted. Uh, you'll live to see your grandchildren. So uh, you should try it, and you should get good advice uh, from people who know what they're talking about. And it'll be the best thing you've ever done. So I, w- I would say, if you can't quit, and that's always the first choice, please look at vaping. Please look at some of the other harm reduction. Get, uh, get some good advice.
1: Great. Well, Dr. Mendelssohn, I really appreciate your time and
0: thank you so much. Mm-hmm.